The FT. Welcome to this edition of World Weekly. I'm Gideon Rachman. Today we look at the resignation of the U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel and what it means for American foreign policy. Joining me on the line from Washington D.C. is Jeff Dyer, our national security correspondent, and also on the line is Ed Luce, our U.S. affairs columnist. Jeff, first. The impression one gets reading the papers, at least, is that this wasn't a voluntary resignation; that Chuck Hagel was pushed. Do you think that's right? And if so, why did they want to get rid of him? That certainly does seem to be the case. I mean, when stories first started circulating a few weeks ago that he might be on the way out, his aides were you know, very keen to say that they had hoped that he would stay for the rest of President Obama's term. So it does seem as if he was pushed out. Why is still a little bit unclear. Some people suggested that he's basically a bit of a fall guy. The administration's national security team have taken a lot of criticism in the last few months because of events in Ukraine, events in Iraq, the rise of ISIS, and not being very able in dealing with that. So some people suggested that he's been made as kind of sacrificial lamb. He's the person who's taking the blame for all that. The problem with that is that he had been a very ineffective defense secretary. That's the general impression, both in the Pentagon and also in places like the White House. Um, even really since his confirmation hearing two years ago, where he got absolutely humiliated by some of his former Republican colleagues, he's never really been very good at articulating his ideas, articulating his strategy, and he always seemed to be quite a passive defense secretary. And so, while he might be the fall guy, there were other reasons why President Obama might have wanted to move on and try and get someone else there who he thought would be a stronger leader. But is there also a wider sense that the U.S. national security team is a little bit dysfunctional at the moment, with John Kerry apparently a bit detached from the White House, and Susan Rice and the team around her often accused of being a bit sort of controlling and not very open to ideas? Yes, very much so. And that's not really just national security. I mean, that's a broader criticism a lot of people make about the White House in general. That it's a very tightly controlled White House. They don't give their cabinet secretaries a lot of authority. It's a few aides who've been around President Obama really since his first election campaign who are the most important people. And Susan Rice counts as one of them. Dennis McDonough, the chief of staff, who's a former deputy national security advisor, would be another one. And so the criticism is that foreign policy is very much driven by this narrow group of people in the White House and that people like the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense aren't given as big a role as they should do. If that is the problem in the way that the administration is conducting foreign policy, then getting rid of Chuck Hagel is not going to actually solve anything. And Ed, of course, all this is happening at a time when the foreign policy agenda is very uh, crowded. Do you think that the Obama administration is in danger of losing control of a range of issues on foreign policy from the Middle East to Europe? Well, I think a lot of its critics would argue it already has lost control. You know, clearly there's a limited bandwidth for any president to deal with. The number of issues that Obama is having to deal with Ukraine, the Iran talks, both the postponement of the deadline on those for another seven months, the ISIS, the ISIL threat in the Middle East, and so on. But I think, you know, to pick up on what Jeff was talking about, those who do doubt Obama's ability to manage these amount of challenges would point back to the very close sort of bubble around him in terms of the White House staff and his national security team in particular. And Hegel's resignation, I think, just points up the limitation of an administration that isn't drawing on talent and advice as widely as it could do in the eyes of its critics. And that, of course, becomes far more stark when you've got this amount of challenge in one go from more corners of the world. Well, let's go through some of those issues and how some of the uh, problems in management may affect them. Let's look at uh, ISIL first of all. Ed, do you feel that 
the White House is any closer, or the Obama team generally, is any closer to solving this conundrum of what they're actually trying to achieve? I mean, other than containing ISIL, do they have a longer, a broader picture of how this is meant to end? No, I don't think so. I mean, one thing that Chuck Hagel's resignation stroke firing does highlight is the disarray in the administration's objectives in Syria, which, of course, is you know roughly half the battlefield that ISIL is inhabiting. And Hegel deeply annoyed the White House by bringing out those contradictions and saying that the administration hadn't yet tied in its objective of defeating ISIL with communicating what it wants to do with the Assad regime. And so unless there's a clear strategy there as to what to do with the Syrian regime, then all the other ISIL policies um, come around it, such as training a moderate Syrian opposition, such as bringing regional allies like Turkey, Saudi Arabia, and the United Arab Emirates along with it. All of these will remain in confusion. So I think the short answer is no. There isn't a clear strategy to defeat ISIL. And is that, uh, Ed, just on this, is that because there isn't a strategy out there that they've thought of, or is it more that there's a case of an argument behind the scenes? I think that there was clearly disagreement between Chuck Hagel and the White House on ISIL, uh, not just on the Syrian regime. Of course, it's all part of the same package. But, you know, I think that there are some in the Pentagon who say, look, if we've got 3,000 military advisors in Iraq, they need to be advising as effectively as they can be. And that means they've got to be in forward positions. They've got to be there at battlefield headquarters with the Iraqi army. And the White House is very reluctant to allow this kind of permission to the Pentagon. It's very, very reluctant to have boots on the ground. And so I think there is a boots on the ground debate going on. Jeff would definitely have more insight into that. But it's something that Chuck Hagel was in the middle of and clearly on the wrong side of. Jeff, what is your view on that? I mean, is it simply an argument about boots on the ground? Or is it an argument also about what do you do in the end about the Assad regime? Do you reluctantly accept that perhaps it stays? I think you have to separate Syria from Iraq. I mean, there is at least the makings of a strategy in Iraq. The basic idea is that you know, the US will use air power and will try and over the next few months, maybe six months up to a year, build up, again, the Iraqi forces, the Iraqi military forces, the Iraqi army, so potentially some militias involving Sunni tribes, and use those forces to push back and take territory away from ISIS with the US providing air cover. The particular kink that Ed's talking about is the issue about if that campaign starts to happen against ISIS, what role do the U.S. advisors play? And what some of the generals in the Pentagon are saying is if there is a ground campaign to take a city like Mosul again, then we will need U.S. advisors on the ground actually monitoring those operations and being with the Iraqi troops. And that would be a breach of the White House's pledge not to have any troops on the ground. So that's the Iraq part of it. You know, it might not work. It might be impossible to actually build a viable Iraqi military force that can take back that Sunni territory. But at least there is the makings of a strategy. In Syria, as I was saying, there really isn't a strategy. And one of the things that Chuck Hagel had done was to point out the contradiction that while the U.S. is launching airstrikes against ISIS in Syria, the net effect of that is actually to boost the Assad regime. And there are some people in the Pentagon that think that because of that, the U.S. has to get more involved in the conflict has to take some of the fight to the Assad regime because of this basic contradiction. But that's not you know, a dominant view by any means. I mean, there are also lots of people who say that the US shouldn't be doing that, including people in the Pentagon, because then all of a sudden you're much more involved in the civil war. You're having to take the fight to the Assad regime. You'd be in an air battle. You'd have to have many more troops involved, many more 
jets involved, you'd have a much, much bigger American footprint, and there'd be you know, a very slippery slope there. There'd be potential to get a much deeper involvement in this three- or four-sided civil war. So it's not as if there is a decisive argument one way or the other, but there's certainly contradictions in the US strategy that Chuck Cable did point out and that did, as Ed pointed out, irritate the White House. And of course, Jeff, I mean, that's just one potential escalation of a conflict. The other one is Ukraine. And I gather there's quite a live argument now in Washington on Capitol Hill, but also within the administration about whether the US should now take the next step and start supplying lethal weaponry to the Ukrainian government. Give us a sense of where that argument is. Well, I think that has been rumbling on for quite a few months, but it has definitely gathered steam in the last few weeks. We've had these new reports from NATO about more Russian troops, more Russian tanks, more Russian artillery going into eastern Ukraine. But my sense is still that the White House, which ultimately makes the decision on these things, is against the idea of arming Ukrainians. And I think for two reasons. One, because it would be potentially a very provocative step, which might actually encourage the Russians to be even more aggressive and to even potentially launch a broader invasion into eastern Ukraine. And the second argument is that it's not at all clear how effective that would be. You'd take months to actually train Ukrainian soldiers to use these weapons. And the case is in eastern Ukraine that a lot of the people doing the fighting are not necessarily the formal Ukrainian military, but actually more informal militias and battalions that have been organized by oligarchs. And so there's a genuine practical question. If you do want to arm Ukraine, who would you actually be arming? And that's not necessarily entirely clear who would have authority over those weapons. So for those reasons, I think the dominant view from the White House is still very much that that's not something that they want to do. But they're under a lot of pressure from people in the administration, but also from Congress. And we're going to have a Republican-controlled Congress, obviously in January, which is even more hawkish on this issue and will put a lot of pressure on the administration. Okay, well, just to conclude then, I mean, obviously, there are enormous challenges they're facing. Uh, It would be difficult for even the most supremely talented foreign policy team to handle them. But do you think that with the removal of Hegel, and we don't even know who's going to replace him, that we're looking at a foreign policy team that, to use the cliché, is fit for purpose? Or should the outside world be worried that the American government facing all these challenges is not really in very good shape in its foreign policy team. Ed, first, what do you think? I think that these are an unusually diverse and knotty range of challenges that the Obama administration faces. It it would be deeply unfair not to make that point up front. I do, however, feel that there is a pretty strongly grounded critique of how the president has run foreign policy. And it's not just a conservative critique. It spans the whole gamut of opinion about how administrations should conduct national security policy. And if you have such a centralized administration with such hypersensitivity to message control as this administration does, then you're going to shut out a lot of voices. You're going to shut out a lot of strategic thought that the administration could desperately do with. And so I think there is a valid critique that President Obama hasn't shown as much of a learning curve as you would like for a president who's, after all, approaching year seven in office and yet has still essentially got inside 2008 campaign people surrounding him and gives an air of sort of besiegement in terms of the media, the outside world and its message control. Jeff, what do you think? Yes, I absolutely agree with Ed. I mean, on one hand, I think we shouldn't over-exaggerate the ability of any US administration to deal with these incredibly complicated crises, especially what's going on in the Middle East, which is a a series of revolutionary fervors across the region, possible breakdown of boundaries and states, 
you know, this is a very, very dramatic historical moment in the Middle East. And there's almost a vanity sometimes in Washington to think that an American administration can somehow shape and control those type of events. So I think that type of analysis is wrong. But it is also absolutely correct to say that you know, the one thing that the president would need in this kind of circumstance where he's faced with all these incredibly difficult, very crises is fresh ideas, people are prepared to challenge him, outside voices who have maybe different experiences and different perceptions. He very much needs that, and that's not what he's getting with his very close set of advisors who's had around him for a number of years who, who know what he thinks and he knows what they think. It's too narrow a base to start making these kind of decisions. Okay, well, with that slightly gloomy uh, thought, let's end it there for this week. Thank you very much indeed to both Jeff Dyer and to Ed Luce. That's it for this week. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.